Alberta's election. It was supposed to be a close call. In some ways, it was. At one point, just 2,600 votes switching parties in the city of Calgary could have changed the outcome of the election. But overall, the UCP ended up winning handily. They've got a reduced majority government, but a majority government nonetheless. And while the NDP got the highest percentage of the popular vote they've ever received, they fell short of forming government, taking just 38 seats. Hello, my name is Brian Lilly. This is the Full Comment Podcast. And before we get to our next guest to dissect everything Alberta, I want to remind you that you can subscribe to the Full Comment Podcast on whatever device or app you're listening to us on right now, whether it's um, Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, what have you. Please hit the subscribe button, share this on social media, let your friends know about us, leave a review. Well, the reviews were in on the Danielle Smith government in Alberta. For a long time, it looked like she was headed for sure defeat. She'd never been elected by the people of Alberta, not directly in an election. She was elected by the United Conservative Party to replace Jason Kenney after he was chased out of the party he helped create. It looked like Rachel Notley was going to be the next premier of Alberta for a second term. What happened? How did things change? How did it all break down? Well, joining me now to discuss that is Monty Solberg. He is a former conservative cabinet minister. He's a consultant in uh, Brooks, Alberta, and he joins us now. Uh, Thanks for the time, Monty. My pleasure, Brian. And remind me the name of your firm so that we we get this uh, straight. Thank you. It's New West Public Affairs. New West Public Affairs. And uh, you've got friends and family working uh, in the system, you're a close watcher of it. Was there a, you know, one specific TSN turning point in all of this where things suddenly went from looking grim for the, the United Conservative Party to Danielle Smith getting back in? Well, I think there were two key points. One was uh, the budget, budget 2023, uh, which was definitely a spending budget and a budget that was designed to appeal to really a lot of urban voters who had concerns about things like health care and affordability. Uh, and those policies uh, that came down and chewed up a lot of the surplus that Alberta accumulated uh, have gone over well. Uh, they have uh, uh, provided the funding for things like um, that have led to, you know, a reduction in the uh, surgery wait times, emergency response times, uh, money for infrastructure in Calgary and Edmonton. And also things like, frankly, even the uh, the new arena deal that the government is uh, says will be a top priority uh, when it uh, actually uh, forms a cabinet and uh, starts making decisions. So that was a big and important step forward for Danielle Smith. It helped change the discussion about you know whether or not she was going to invoke um, uh, the Sovereignty Act and cause all this disquiet and drive away investment, et cetera. And the other really big one during the election campaign was her debate performance, which was terrific. She did a great job on that. And I think really went a long way uh, to putting to rest the concerns that she would be uh, radical and uh, not represent the views of mainstream Alberta. Uh, She came across as polished, professional, and very much somebody who understood the values of Albertans. I didn't catch her TV appearance 
um, just ahead of the election month. You know, my apologies for that. I'll uh, I'll do better next time. But someone told me that you went on just before, and I don't know which um, network you were on, and you were talking about Danielle Smith, and you, they said, I, I'm not sure he could have used the word moderate more times than he did trying to reassure voters that Danielle Smith was moderate. Was that something that the the UCP needed to get across? And if so, why? Why did they have to convince voters that, you know, she wasn't scary? Well, uh, she said a lot of things in the run-up to the campaign, pardon me, in the run-up to her um, her, her, her uh, leadership bid against um, people like Travis Tapes and others uh, that were things that were really out there. I'll be honest. Uh, some of those things were said in the context of her time as a as a radio talk show host, uh, as somebody who's uh, you know full on libertarian uh, policy wonk who likes to muse about ideas like private health care and this kind of thing. And a lot of those things came back to haunt her. They were used against her, um, you know, by the NDP very effectively. The media used them, but the NDP used them very effectively to start to give the impression uh, that she had a hidden agenda, that if uh, she was allowed to be premier, she would bring in these policies that were uh, just antithetical to the values of the people of Alberta. Well, it turned out, of course, that uh, that was a lot of hype. That was a caricature that uh, her opponents were building. And um, she needed a good debate performance to emphasize to people that she shared their views. She did an outstanding job during the debate. She was very much um, somebody who, uh, in the minds of a lot of people, not only was moderate, but was likable and was somebody I think that uh, they felt they could relate to. In fact, I just saw a uh, research presentation this morning by a pollster. I won't reveal his name because it was a private poll, but... um, really indicating that uh, her performance during the campaign, especially during that debate, uh, was just key to winning over Albertans, especially Calgarians, who had a lot of questions about, you know, who is the real Danielle Smith? There's a world of difference between being a pundit, uh, as I am full-time, as you are sometimes, and running for office. And, and you know, as a former MP and cabinet minister, there's things you might say in a conversation uh, where you're exploring ideas that, okay, well, now it's time to govern, to make decisions. And, and you, you might have said something that, well, it's not going to fly at the cabinet table. It's not going to fly with the public. So that will never be policy, even if you mused favorably about it before. No, that's right. I mean, if anyone who's been around uh, politics understands that, but it's easy uh, for people that aren't necessarily sophisticated about politics uh, to believe that if somebody said something one, three years ago, those are the beliefs they hold and that's their agenda. Uh, but it really isn't the case. And um, I also think there's a little bit of uh, burnout uh, with uh, all these examples of people getting caught up in something they said on social media and uh, then, uh, extrapolating forward, saying this is their agenda. I think the public's heard that so often that they have a little trouble believing it. I think I think the public sees beyond that now, and they saw her record up to that point. If the UCP had to find a way, Monty, to show that, that Danielle Smith was moderate, mainstream, shared your values, 
did the NDP have to do that with with Rachel Notley as well? Because my sense during the campaign is you had people voting for both leaders and you had people voting against both leaders that they were polarizing. Um, and so, you know, Notley, you know, her record isn't from being a radio talk show host. It's from being premier during a time where she alienated a lot of people. So did, did they have to rebrand her as well? They tried very hard to rebrand her. Um, going back to February, I remember one time turning on TV and uh, on the on BNN, the Business News Network, and who was on there but Rachel Notley. It was the first time she had ever appeared on BNN. And she was there trying to give reassurance to the oil and gas sector that she could be trusted to not ruin the industry is essentially what was happening. I said to an NDP colleague at the time, uh, that it was pretty obvious what they were up to. He didn't deny it. And it was uh, something that continued on through the campaign. Um, Rachel Notley was very quick to uh, dismiss Justin Trudeau's plan for an emissions cap on the oil and gas sector uh, because uh, it effectively amounted to a reduction in production and it would make it very hard for Canadian oil and gas producers to compete. Uh, but it was Notley who came out very quickly to say that's not on. So it was a very different Rachel Notley in 2023 than we saw in 2015 to 2019 when she was way too cozy with Justin Trudeau. And this time uh, she went out of her way to downplay any of those relationships and uh, to try and indicate that she was pro oil and gas. Didn't she go as far as to disagree with Jagmeet Singh and distance herself from the federal NDP leader? Oh, yes, she did. Um, yeah, that is, uh, you know, Jagmeet Singh and the federal NDP are definitely an, uh, an anchor around the neck of the provincial NDP on so many issues. You know, they're the ones that keep the Justin Trudeau liberals in power, et cetera. And it's, it was a point of criticism uh, from uh, UCP supporters and the party itself that, Rachel Notley still was tied to the federal NDP, whether or not she even wanted to be in some cases, because the moment you become a member of the provincial party or a member of the federal party, et cetera. So there's all these all these connections. But she did everything in her power to try and put distance be between her and Jagmeet. Uh, and uh, to some degree was successful. I mean, you look at the support that she picked up in parts of Calgary amongst disaffected conservatives who had concerns about, you know, where Danielle would take the party. And, and honestly, the NDP did a quite a good job on, on, on bringing that vote home on election day. Uh, as you pointed out at the beginning of the uh, interview, I mean, it was a couple of thousand votes made all the difference between electing a UCP government and electing an NDP government. You know, Monty, you, you mentioned Calgary. You look at some of the races, Calgary bow, uh, the UCP won that 12,940 votes to the NDP's 12,555. But then there's some that are even closer. Calgary, Glenmore, it's a 30 vote difference for the NDP winning that riding. Um, there are others that obviously are going into recounts as well. Is that a, is that a knock against the UCP and, and Danielle Smith that the NDP was so successful in Calgary? It's interesting. It, it is certainly a, a backhanded criticism of the ND, of the uh, UCP, uh, in a sense. Uh, you know, those ridings 
are reliably conservative typically. And when you look at how well the federal conservative party does in Calgary and throughout Alberta, I mean, it's night and day. Uh, federally, you know, the conservatives poll well over 60%. Uh, in the provincial election, it was 53%. But in a lot of that vote was concentrated in rural areas. When you look at Calgary, you know, the vote just wasn't strong enough given the disappearance of the third parties in Alberta, like the provincial liberals and the Alberta party, which barely showed up at all. So a lot of that vote and those sort of disaffected uh, red Tories, uh, you know, their combined vote came was enough in some cases to knock off people like Whitney Isaac and Calgary Glenmore by a mere 30 votes. But remember, that's also a riding where in the past in 2015, uh, the NDP won by, I think it was seven or eight votes. So, uh, you know, ridings like that are vulnerable when all the conditions are right. And uh, in this particular case, all the conditions were there. Alberta has gone to a de facto two-party uh, system right now. We'll see if it stays that way because things have been fluid. I remember being um, out there in 2012, covering the election. That was the one that a lot of people thought Daniel Smith would win as, and become premier as leader of the Wild Rose um, back then. Uh, the, the NDP was, I think, the fourth-placed party at that point. The Alberta Liberal Party, um, had prior to that election, had more seats than the NDP. And they may have at the end as well, I forget. Um, they have just disappeared. And so the, well, the third, fourth, and fifth parties aren't really factors anymore. Uh, how does that change the, the politics in, in Alberta? Is it just if, if you're a, a, a new Democrat federally, you're definitely with them. If you're a liberal, you're split between them and the UCP. How does that work? So it's, it's very interesting. You know, going back I'll, a little bit of a sort of political history lesson, uh, the Alberta liberals actually became a real force in the 93 election under Lawrence Decor's leadership. And Decor uh, made them popular uh, by almost running to the right of the Ralph Klein conservatives. And uh, Decor came very close to winning, uh, winning that election. It was tight. For the longest time, the legacy of Decor lived on, and the Liberal Party of Alberta had strength in parts of Calgary and in Edmonton. And most of that was uh, based on pretty practical policies. Some of those MLAs were quite conservative-leaning, uh, but socially liberal, and that's how they survived and held on for a long period of time. But after a while, the leadership changed, uh, support started to diminish, and leadership was taken over by people who were definitely on the left, and the parties basically uh, disappeared, went to, went to zero. Now the dynamic is very different. You have a number of things happening all at once. Uh, you know, you, we had Danielle Smith coming in in a weakened position because of her past comments and just concerns about where she would take the party. But the party brand is very strong. As I said, conservative in Alberta uh, is synonymous. And uh, uh, the brand is just something that just keeps going on. The NDP brand has been uh, very difficult for the party to overcome especially on the economy. Social Democrats just don't do well, typically because of economic issues. But because Rachel Notley uh, was able to 
moved to the center so dramatically uh, over the protests of some in her party, uh, they had a shot this time. They've also professionalized their party. Uh, they were very good at fundraising going into the election campaign, um, criticizing both Jason Kenney and then Danielle Smith. They raised a lot of money. Uh, they brought in a lot of organizers from all over and really got good at identifying votes and determining, you know, what kind of policies policies they needed to appeal to people in the center in Alberta and to some degree uh, lessen the stigma that goes with voting for the NDP. Uh, meanwhile, United Conservative Party started in that hole uh, that uh, Danielle Smith partially created for herself, uh, but partially were, were things that were taken way out of context over from many years ago. And uh, so it took some real good politicking through the campaign, especially the debate performance, to turn that around. But that's that really gives you a sense of the of sort of the political dynamics. And going forward, Brian, I think it's going to be a bit of a riding by riding fight from here on in, you know, on things like things like uh, education, things like safe streets, uh, safe transit systems, uh, all of that kind of thing, because let's face it, the future will be fought in the cities where the population is growing more quickly, where there'll be more seats added in the future. And if the UCP doesn't learn to speak urban uh, issues to voters, they're going to have a difficult time in the years ahead. I mean, Calgary had traditionally been very solid ground for anybody running on a vaguely conservative banner. Uh, Edmonton, not quite as, as friendly to conservatives. What's that dynamic you know why is one city reliably or had been reliably conservative and the other is nicknamed redmonton yeah well <laughs> it's a good question i mean part of the problem with uh, part of the challenge with edmonton is it's a government town they tend to be a bit more left uh, leaning and oriented uh, they have you know the major university which automatically almost gives the ndp some seats mm-hmm. um so you know you have all of this uh that is happening in in Edmonton. But I, you know, I can speculate. I mean, I do think uh, that tone matters. Um, I think that uh, to some degree, the UCP has suffered from some overheated rhetoric at times of the past. I mean, I think overheated rhetoric often works when it comes to Ottawa. Uh, But, you know, sort of talking in um, sort of an angry way about some of the other issues, I think is a bit of a turnoff to to voters. And I think we we need to really assess whether or not uh, we can find a better way to uh, make our points um, without some of that, uh, that harsh tone uh, that I think to some degree drives away uh, certain groups, especially women, especially in the suburbs uh, where so many of these battles are being fought. So these are things I, that I, you know, I certainly can't say for sure, but it's my hunch that that is some of the challenge. Uh, that, that's something that Doug Ford managed to do, and it's interesting. I um, uh, just before the election, um, I got a, a a note from a friend in in Lethbridge who said, "I'm terrified of the uh, the UCP or the the NDP winning. Um, I don't want to have to leave Alberta to go back to Ford's Ontario, where there's nothing conservative." And I thought, "Well, wait a minute, you guys are you know people say Alberta's so conservative." Um, 
you guys just about elected an NDP government, something we haven't come close to doing since 1990 in Ontario. Um, your spending's higher than uh, than Ontario. It's almost the highest in the country on education, on health care. Per capita spending is huge. Is Alberta really as conservative as people think, or is it a branding? Well, so I think with Alberta, one of the things that makes it conservative in a unique way is our alienation from Ottawa. And, um, you know, that's something the rest of the country or much of the rest of the country doesn't necessarily feel. Uh, but in Alberta and Saskatchewan in particular, uh, that is something that's deeply felt. And it is synonymous with uh, conservatism, I would say. Uh, but in other ways, uh, you're right. You know, we spend more on our social programs than anywhere else in the country. Uh, and it's, it's an embarrassment to some <laughs> conservatives, me included, because, you know, we don't get the results, I think, for the money we pay. Uh, so that's, a, that's something that I think governments need to work on and maybe work on at least quietly. Uh, but the other big issue that uh, makes us conservative, I think, is our approach to oil and gas. We see it as being necessary. We think that rushing ahead to uh, end the oil and gas industry by 2035 or 2050 is ridiculous. Uh, we know that the world will depend on oil and gas for decades and decades uh, to come. And uh, if someone is going to be supplying that oil and gas and doing it in a way that is sustainable and that captures emissions, it should be Alberta. And it should be Saskatchewan, it should be Western Canada, which benefits the entire country, uh, as opposed to uh, ceding that ground to uh, Venezuela and Saudi Arabia, Arabia and Russia uh, as examples. All right, Monty, I want to talk about that alienation from, um, from the rest of Canada when we come back. We're going to take a quick break. And, you know, your description of oil and gas, uh, maybe I'm an Albertan at heart. I wish we still had petroleum as a going concern here in Ontario. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the start of the Canadian oil industry. Uh, we'll be yeah, back. I, I know. I've been there. I've been there. Back in a moment with Monty Sauberg. Western alienation is definitely a real thing. And it's something that we talked about a few episodes ago with Saskatchewan Premier uh, Scott Moe, that there is just this sense that Ottawa doesn't care about Western Canada. When when you were an MP, especially, you know, you were in opposition for a long time, but you were in government for, for several years as well, including in cabinet. What, did you feel that there was a difference during the Harper government years? Oh, for sure. Uh, during the Harper government years, Stephen Harper, you know, uh, fought for fairness in transfers and, for instance, changed the transfer formula so that um, provinces would get transfers based on population, uh, which seems like an obvious <laughs> thing to do, but it wasn't the case when we came to power. Uh, so he did that, and that helped uh, balance things out so that Alberta was treated a bit more fairly when it came to that. And he certainly didn't penalize the oil and gas sector. To the contrary, he looked for ways to help them succeed and approve several uh, pipelines, etc. And, uh, you know, was ho hoping to have the chance to do more when the government uh, ultimately fell. But, uh, you know, it, it was as much a tone as it was some of the policies that were brought in. Alberta was respected. It was given a place at the table in confederation. And right now it feels very much like um, Alberta is not welcome 
uh, in the uh, in the big discussions that are happening now, especially on the future of energy and climate change, um, where the Trudeau government is very ideological, is putting in place these unrealistic targets that are, that are going to drive up the cost of everything for Canadians and uh, put a lot of people out of work. Uh, they were pushing for the uh, the fertilizer um, emissions reductions in a way that would have hurt food production in Canada. They seem to have backed off that front a little bit, or they've at least slowed down. Um, but, but I mean, a policy that would see uh, production of pretty much everything grown out of the ground in Canada reduced dramatically. Yeah, they had a 30% target for the essentially to reduce uh, nitrous oxide, which means uh, getting rid of um, substantially getting rid of fertilizer that we use to um, grow wheat, grow canola, grow everything that um, we consume and export. And, um, you know, there was enough pressure on um, the federal liberals that they actually voted against their own proposition at committee. And uh, so for now, that seems to be laid to rest, although Frankly, if the government intends on hitting its 2035 and 2050 targets, they have to pull every lever they can, and they have to do it in a way that's hell-bent to get their results, which means they don't care about what happens to the economy and to the individuals impacted by it. I mean, I just don't see how they can achieve both, how they can leave Canada prosperous and uh, hit those targets at the same time. Um, uh, in fact, uh, more and more you're seeing people come out against it. Even the Public Policy Forum uh, just released a paper saying that, you know, the government's targets essentially are unrealistic. And the Public Policy Forum is no right-wing, you know, mouthpiece. Oh, it, it's the, been a reliably liberal organization, small L liberal, you know, mushy middle sort of organization forever. Exactly. and And, you know, when you have... Uh, organizations like PPF, Canadian Chamber, and many others, bank economists all saying, hey, hold on here. Uh, this is a near and present danger to our prosperity, and it's unnecessary. Uh, you know, I think at that point, it's really time to, uh, to listen and take heed. Right. Now, how does this alienation from Ottawa play out in, in terms of how Danielle Smith, now that she has secured a second term, how does it play out in her relationship with the Trudeau government? If, if it lasts, we'll see. Um, you know, does she go in guns a blazing, fighting on all fronts, or does she pick her battles? Well, she she needs to pick her battles. I mean, it's complicated, Brian. I won't I won't kid you. I mean, on the one hand, we have the Trudeau Liberals to be concerned about, and on the other hand, we have the the Biden administration with their Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, in the U.S. that is using huge incentives to draw investment into the U.S. for things like carbon capture, utilization and storage, uh, and all kinds of other uh, incentives that will impact industry in Canada. You know, you're seeing it in Ontario, um, uh, where uh, EV makers are being drawn to the south or potentially being drawn to the south, and you're seeing it in Alberta as well. So something needs to give. We, Alberta needs its own climate strategy to mesh with uh, the federal strategy to, in order to prevent uh, that investment leaving Alberta. We also need it in order to 
draw financing to the oil and gas sector. Because if you don't have a climate plan these days, it's very difficult to raise financing. It's also difficult to avoid active shareholders taking seats on your board to help change the direction your company is headed. So these things are, it, it's difficult. What I do know is that the premier needs to pick her battles. So uh, on election night, she was very vocal about funding for Alberta on some of the um, restrictions the federal government wants to place on the industry. But on the other hand, we know that in the back rooms, uh, they will have to come to some kind of an arrangement or it will be difficult for the oil and gas sector to survive. Where do you think she she goes on issues that have been floating around forever, such as um, Alberta getting its own pension plan or dropping the RCMP policing contract in favor of of local policing? It's funny to hear my my colleagues here in eastern Canada act as if this is somehow revolutionary. We have our own provincial police force in Ontario for people that haven't noticed (laughs) Quebec has their own provincial police force and their own pension plan. That's not part of the CPP. Um, You know, but every time these issues that were in the firewall, the infamous firewall letter are raised, people act as if it's, you know, a separatist movement. I I don't think so, but does she act on those? Are people looking for that or are they looking for her to take care of the economy, fund the schools, fund the hospitals, have the roads paved? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and and um, it's not entirely clear what the answer is. You know, one of the uh, considerations, I think, is to sit down with caucus after, you know, we've lost a number of seats, and identify from caucus, what are your priorities? You know, we've, we've, we've made some commitments around things like an Alberta police force and uh, an Alberta pension plan, and we said we would listen to people and talk to them and potentially put these things to a referendum. Um, but uh, I think the first step is to determine what the sequence should be and whether or not some of those other things even move forward, whether there's an appetite, not just in rural Alberta, but, um, you know, right across the entire the entire province. Your point, though, is a good one, you know, about, uh, about things like uh, an Alberta pro- pro- uh, provincial police force. Um, you know, many of our city police forces uh, in Alberta have are uh, not the RCMP. They have their own police forces, and others are switching to city police forces right now. Um, there are no pro- There's no question. There's been problems with the RCMP. I think we all know that. In fact, Marco Mendicino is coming out, committing to address some of the problems in the RCMP. So clearly, that's an issue. So I hope people don't look down their nose too much at us for asking the question because it's a valid question. With respect to the pension plan, um, you know, it is uh, it's it's a difficult issue, again, because on the one hand, uh, Alberta has a very young population. And so there is a temptation to say we pay way more into Canada pension plan than we will ever receive. On the other side, people are wondering, well, is it portable if I move to British Columbia uh, after I've been working in Alberta? Do I get to take my plan with me and there's all kinds of sort of that those sorts of vesting issues and things like that that uh, people wonder about they wonder about would it be turned over to a bunch of wild-eyed radicals who would who would uh, invest in things that would make the fund go broke over a period of time so or, you know, or would are, it be used by uh, as it is in quebec as a 
a political yeah. tool to yeah. invest in industries that the government wants to support. Yeah, exactly. And that, that clearly has happened in, uh, in Quebec. And, and, you know, some people might think that's good, but a lot of people would say, you know, there's a lot of danger in that. And uh, so these are questions that need to be vetted and discussed and debated, I think, before we get any clear sense of whether that question would even come forward. And then secondly, would it ever get the approval of the people of Alberta to move forward with their own pension plan? It's interesting that we're talking about, you know, a pension plan and the RCMP, whereas a couple of years ago, there was an attempt to get the separatist movement going in Alberta. There was uh, the Buffalo movement. There was, uh, you know, people trying to start parties. That Maverick party, <laughs> uh, your, your your old colleague Jay Hill was part of that. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of all fizzled away, both federally and provincially, hasn't it? Well, it has. But, you know, in Alberta, we start new political parties uh, about every 10 <laughs> minutes. Uh, so <laughs> we are not afraid to do that. If we feel like things aren't going our the way we want them to go, uh, we'll start a political party. And, you know, nine out of 10 fail. Uh, <laughs> but some like the Reform Party, Wild Rose, and others that have become governments in Alberta, like Social Credit and the United Farmers of Alberta back in the day, you know, they go on to achieve important things and and uh, set the direction for the province. So so that can still happen, uh, but that depends on, you know, the wise leadership of our premier. I mean, if she listens carefully to the uh, concerns of rural Albertans, uh, secondary cities, uh, and the large cities, and finds a way to reconcile those interests, she can continue to govern for a very, very long time. But it it requires uh, a level of listening and uh, dedication to solving problems uh, that so far, you know, not many premiers have managed to achieve. I will say that the Ford government has done about as good a job at that as any I've seen in Canada. They come closest, in my mind, to a party that can reconcile rural and urban and suburban beliefs. Uh, and um, I would recommend to Danielle Smith that she take a close look at how Doug Ford is doing what he's doing. Well, you mentioned earlier factions in the NDP. Let's talk then about those factions within the UCP, because there is... <laughs> First off, um, your recent record in Alberta, not only of starting political parties every 10 minutes, but not giving um, a premier a second chance. Uh, I, I think we'd all agree this is really Danielle Smith's first election uh, yeah. as, as premier. Um, I'm sure she'd like to win another term in, in, in four years. Does she keep those factions together? There's the old PC Wild Rose Rift. There's social conservatives, fiscal conservatives, urban, rural. You've got this Take Back Alberta group that's trying to flex some muscle. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think she has to do the same thing that um, I talked about between rural and urban. She really has to find a way to reconcile these things. Um, you know, part of the part of the issue is I think rural Alberta feels like they were ignored for a period of time and some of their issues aren't being addressed. Well, I don't think we can argue that anymore. Rural Alberta is firmly in charge in the government of Alberta. They have the majority of seats. They'll have all kinds of cabinet ministers and they have a premier that hails from rural Alberta. So uh, rural Alberta will get its say. I think the biggest challenge now is to bring urban Alberta into the fold. Um, you know, take back Alberta 
has a voice for sure. I think the premier is wise to not pay it too much heed and so far hasn't. I can't imagine they'll be very pleased with some of the policy decisions that the premier has taken to date uh, since Take It Back Alberta has been influential uh, in winning a majority of the um, positions within the infrastructure of the political party, the United Conservative Party. But, um, you know, to her credit, the premier said, no, we're governing for the province, not just for Take Back Alberta. And she's brought in into effect uh, policies that it are, I think, quite sensible. So uh, the challenge in my mind will mostly be with uh, with urban Alberta. And I, I don't think she should pay a whole heck of a lot of attention to some of the more out there voices uh, on either side of the spectrum. She governs toward the middle and uh, fights for Alberta in Ottawa. I think she'll be in a good position. Uh, but you you don't seem to to have any fears that the the wild rose PC factions would would break apart. Well, they they may well try, but you know a lot of the people that would be the proponents of breaking apart are going to be sitting in Danielle Smith's cabinet. And uh, you know I think about Brian Jean, Todd Lowen, um, people like that. They'll be sitting in that cabinet, and they are the ones that are going to drive the agenda in Alberta. And you know I think. Everybody gets paid attention to at various times and they get things that will matter to them. Um, you know, and that's the way the government should govern. They should be mindful that there are different factions. And, and if she is going to be the premier for everyone, which was her election night commitment, then she has to make sure that their, their issues get addressed uh, over the, uh, the next four years. And if she's wise, she'll do just that. Wise words from Monty Salberg. Monty, thanks for the time today, and uh, we'll have to see you out in Calgary sometime soon. I'd like that, Brian. Thanks so much. Take care. The Full Comment is a post-media podcast. My name's Brian Lilly, your host. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. Remember, you can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music. Help us out by leaving a review, telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening, and until next time. I'm Brian Lilly.